Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We have been addressing substance-related and addictive disorders, and in particular, opioid use disorder. Uh, We've went through uh, the diagnostic criterion uh, based on the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, as well as have begun looking at the American Society of Addiction Medicine's recommended levels of care or level of care recommendations. Uh, We've discussed early intervention. We've also covered outpatient care. And uh, today, on today's podcast, we're going to take a look at opioid treatment programs, which is also considered by the American Society of Addiction Medicine as a level one of care. And again, we've measured all of this or examined all of this in context to the different... uh, dimensions of um, intoxication, withdrawal potential, uh, associated biomedical conditions, emotional behavioral problems, uh, readiness for change, uh, the risk for relapse or continued use, as well as the current support system, the living environment. And once again, for those of you who may or may not have listened to prior podcasts, most of Uh, what we're speaking of here is an attempt to try to approximate the best level of care by looking at these different dimensions and determining where to begin or initiate the intervention uh, with the greatest hope of success. So if an individual has very low intoxication or withdrawal potential, you're going to then begin with the lesser level of care. If they do not have biomedical conditions that are associated, again, lesser level of care. Uh, If they may have an enhanced emotional or increased risk of emotional or behavioral problems, or as they're manifesting those, there's an increased risk of relapse as a trigger, then you may go for a higher level of care. Readiness for change, if someone is uh, at a point where They recognize already that they need some help or the potential uh, problem that this represents, then lesser level of care means that they are more ready to change. If one is more resistant, if there's more denial, then it's going to probably require more intense interventions, uh, albeit then a higher level of care. Uh, Same with relapse or continued use, risk for relapse or continued use. If there's a low risk for relapse or continued use, then a lesser level of care, and that increases stepwise over the course of or over the dimension of these different levels of care. Same with living environment, dimension six, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Uh, If they have good support system, uh, a good support system or not, can speak volumes greatly to their uh, chance for success, the probability of success. Uh, Seeing support as uh, that aspect of someone who's not using, uh, beginning with that at the the lesser end, the minimum, to the need for the ability to have someone there who really can care for or would be able to encourage or would not be so likely to enable a continued use of, uh, in this case, the opiates, an illegal or illicit substance or the substance in question. 
So earlier intervention is more along the lines of uh, just had experienced and encountered some sort of difficulty, marginal, very minimal, uh, 0.5 level of care, early intervention, again, for the sake of maybe as much prevention as it is uh, treatment. Uh, We've discussed then level one, which is outpatient, which is the next higher, next step higher level of care. And that would be where someone has had either um, not only one incident, one incident, one occurrence, uh, but they found themselves at uh, some risk of possible uh, withdrawal. Again, they may have some biomedical conditions that complicates the treatment. Uh, There may be associated emotional behavioral disorders. They may be less ready to change. They may have higher risk of relapse, et cetera, et cetera. Today, when we discuss medication-assist treatment in uh, a a very um, sort of direct way, uh, we've mentioned it in the past is what I'm trying to say, but more directly, we're going to include then same level of care, one, but there is a great distinction between outpatient substance abuse chemical dependency treatment and opioid treatment program, an OTP, or as I've called it, a medication-assist treatment program. The difference would be that the person in medication-assist treatment is receiving, again, a medication, which most often is a combination of an agonist, always mess this up, so I want to make sure I get this right on today's podcast, and an antagonist. An agonist would be a synthetic opiate to facilitate then their adjusting to the, the being without the opiate or the substance in an active way in their system by prescribing a less potent variation of the substance uh, so that we can then uh, eliminate the risk for maybe withdrawal uh, with uh, medication assist and, and particularly as you combine that then the uh, agonist, which would be the synthetic opiate with an antagonist, which would be uh, something along the lines of a blocker or naloxone, you're not only addressing then the risk for intoxication withdrawal because, in effect, the combo of those two, the agonist-antagonist, when it comes to the central nervous system and that the way the opiates then, the receptor sites that the opiates would go to or would be uh, having effect at, they're blocked. There's no potential then for the person to experience an intoxicated effect because basically there's no receptor sites remaining available that would then be able to create that effect. The agonist-antagonist combination neutralizes the effect. Uh, Also, we're looking at medication assist in the sense of uh, relapse potential then, a risk for relapse or continued use, being uh, minimalized or minimized, if only because the uh, opiate, again, uh, the illegal substance, the opioid, really doesn't have an effect. Most often, people relapse because of emotional triggers, circumstances, situations that bring about emotional responses that then uh, are the equivalent of pain, And a person takes the opioid to eliminate the pain. 
by not being able to uh, eliminate the pain, fully eliminate the pain by taking an opiate or an opioid. You're not going to get that effect. We said that a moment ago. You really then have no benefit. So, so there would be always an opportunity to use an opioid, illicit, illegal, but it won't help. Uh, and with that, as much as, again, the elimination of pain would be the end game or the end result that's desired, uh, when you're on Suboxone, you still feel pain. So it would not remove the pain it will not necessarily lessen the pain. Uh, what it really does, though, is it sort of then encourages a person to come up with other ways to treat the trigger, the circumstance and situation that represents the trigger, address it in more adaptive sort of ways, means. Uh, and that's a good thing because eventually, in the end, if there is any hope to eliminate the uh, suboxone, to titrate the person off the suboxone, then management of life circumstances and situations that have pain attached to them, which again would be more psychological than physiological, although it could have physiological dimensions. The individual, though, hopefully, by not having the pain totally eliminated by the suboxone or the use of this uh, 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 medication assistance, they'll learn, have opportunities to learn. They will not get high, cannot alleviate the pain. They're able to focus some attention, put some effort into developing better coping skills, how to manage stress, how to, again, problem solve, how to be empirical. All those things that we hope would be learned growing up, maturing. Uh, maybe some haven't learned them ever for the first time. In that sense, they're, from a psychological standpoint, somewhat arrested in their development, maybe because of the use of an opiate and how effective it really is in alleviating pain. The person has forgotten, <laughs> if you could do that, or had no need to, continue to be practiced at psychologically through the use of coping skills, managing life stress and situations that represent pain. The person, though, is in the end, after taking an opiate, uh, somewhat has been rendered somewhat incapable of handling what most of us would consider normal stress. Now, if you think of it in terms of maybe a more physical condition, Let's say someone injures a part of their body, and with that, then they're not able to function as they normally did or had up to the point of the injury. And even as they then might go through procedures to correct, fix, alleviate, uh, um, correct the, the physical problem, nonetheless, once they go through that phase of convalescence, they're still going to have to relearn, in many cases, to do not only what they could do before, but also their body has to become used to 
a certain degree of physical exercise, activity, use, the body has to recover a capability to actually, um, they call it work hardening, be able to do what that part formerly could do. It's all just part of healing. It's all part of overcoming injuries. And uh, I mentioned surgery. That would include physical therapy. Uh, It could include just a muscle tear or a sprain. You take a few days off. But when you go back to your normal activities, the muscles have to grow again. They have to become functional to the level they were before. It takes some time. Uh, There's a lot that has to happen physiologically to restore, to be able to return to the pre-accident level of functioning. Same thing with substance abuse, chemical dependency, Same thing in a physiological sort of way, although we're not talking about something like a muscle uh, or something uh, like a break. Uh, What we're talking about, however, is functionability. And in that same way, the emotional, psychological system's ability to manage stress, there is a period of growth, Uh, hardening uh, to acquire or to get back to a prior level of functioning. Uh, A person has to learn to do it again, has to learn to deal with the stress again. And it should be gradual, and it should be somewhat gradual and somewhat incremental. Uh, It may take a few days, up to a few weeks. And with, again, opiates, and as we've discussed in prior podcasts, the way they do affect your physiological functioning as then that affects your emotional and psychological functioning, your even your brain functioning, it can take a sustained and and, uh, extended, extended period of time, accentuated period of time before a person is able to get back to that higher level of functioning. But that's the same as with any psychological or situation, circumstance sort of based adjustment reaction uh, that an individual might go through. If they've had a particularly difficult uh, stress, stressor, circumstance, situation, it's caused them to uh, have anxiety, uh, stress overload, too much norepinephrine and adrenaline in the system, even as then they may need some convalescent time, convalescent time or since time. Once they begin to be ready to go back, there is then also a phase of working back up to a capacity, uh, psychologically, emotionally, as with physically, to be able to deal with the level of stress prior to, again, the incident. But that, uh, once more, would be with any psychological or emotional condition, and uh, some are more progressively debilitating than others, There's a chronic course, but especially for those that are representative of adjustment reactions and disorders, we see the same thing. It's just once more the way opiates affect the person's overall functioning, it can take a quite extended or accentuated period of time, up to three, maybe four years for the body 
to really get back to prior opiate use functionality, levels of functioning. How do we know? We measure that as much by not necessarily physiology uh, as with being able to uh, somehow measure one's capacity emotionally to deal with or address, but just the relapse prevention or risk rates when it comes to relapse prevention. The rates don't get even somewhat reasonable typically to after 36 to 48 months. And reasonable would be your risk of relapse in percentage terms getting under 50%. That's a long period of time for the person to be expected to deal with normal daily life stressors, maybe abnormal life stressors since life doesn't stop coming simply because you've become an addict and you lost your functional capacity to deal with it or compromise it even more so than might have been more typical or normal or would be seen in more typical or normal terms. So these individuals are at greater risk for in a longer period or an extended period of time where the medication assist then gives them time and space to convalesce, to emotionally, psychologically, but always physiologically because the emotions, the psychology of it is predicated upon emotions. The brain function, the ability for the brain to function properly is predicated upon physiology, biochemistry. For the homeostatic response, that perfect balance of all neurotransmitters that all of us should have been born with, although potentially compromised, Nonetheless, if we're still alive and functioning, still is working probably better than when somebody subjects the body to the added problems of inserting a substance like opiates into their system, which compromises then that even further to be able to at least be restored to a prior level of functioning before the opioid was introduced or became the problem that it's become. So this, in essence, is the great advantage of medication assist. It provides somewhat of an opportunity which might still be there without the medication, but would be so difficult. The percentages, the odds would be so against the individuals being able to sustain that over time in a fashion to allow the body to do its readjusting, but also for them to psychologically, emotionally uh, become more familiar with day-to-day life stressors or if there are extenuating uh, life circumstances, situations, uh, them to be able to manage them most appropriately, to avoid a relapse. And that's usually where the problem is. Most individuals are not able to just stop using an opiate because it takes so long for the body to physiologically, emotionally, psychologically 
adjust to not only normal life stressors, but extenuating or accentuating life stressors to the degree or extent that they will then relapse. And if they relapse, then, of course, they begin all over again. And I do believe to some extent that is true, though it may not be exactly that. It takes very little time to return to the worst possible level of functioning, biologically, physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, as it was prior to their even seeking treatment or receiving treatment of this kind. So when it comes to medication assist, we presume, at least with Dimension 1 of the American Society of Addiction Medicine's uh, levels of care and criterion for placement, that there is already a moderate to high either intoxication at the time they come in, level of intoxication at the time they come in for help. Uh, they have been using. They can't stop using. Why? Because when there is that level of use, then, and we've said before in prior podcasts, that the body does have an incredible ability to tolerate an opiate, which means just continue to adjust functioning to try to sustain some sort of normalcy of functioning, that it then creates incredible withdrawal when you go off of it, remove the substance. So most of the individuals that come for treatment come to treatment intoxicated. They may not be intoxicated in the sense that it's compromising their ability to function, but they may be so saturated with the substance that the moment they stop using, they immediately go into withdrawal. So that's why Dimension 1 with medication-assist treatment is different than just outpatient because on outpatient, we've said that there's a very little chance of intoxication coming in intoxicated or uh, risk of withdrawal, or that it's usually manageable in one sort of um, uh, effect or withdrawal effect or going through one incident episode of withdrawal. Uh, the person gets through it. it. It is the typical amount of time, 48 to 72 hours of really difficulty, but generally it's not as severe. It doesn't bottom out as much and they're usually able to endure it better. Uh, the expectation probably also isn't there, as with somebody who has gone through withdrawal several times, of not only what it is like, but then becoming somewhat fearful of it, avoidant of it, and then giving up way too soon. You could probably endure it if you had to do it just once, but if you've done it multiple times, your uh, courage to endure it, your determination to, do, to endure it again and again and again, as you have in the past, has left you uh, pretty quick to go ahead and say, I can't, I just need to go get something to make me feel better. And typically, the only thing that really makes you feel better is opiates. With that, too, on Dimension 2, uh, there is none or mild biomedical conditions. Uh, their health is generally not so compromised. Uh, 
They've been receiving adequate medical services, uh, which is very similar to outpatient. On level three, the emotional and behavioral, it can be uh, somewhat the same, again, as outpatient. Uh, there is none or mild emotional behavioral problems, or they've been receiving adequate behavioral health care for the problems that are there. Dimension four, uh, there is, and that's the readiness for change or to change. We said on the outpatient, there be may be none or minimal or mild readiness for change because there's also <laughs> maybe none or minimal true insight into what the person has gotten into. There's a recognition more so for a need of help or assistance than there was in early intervention, level 0.5. But it is still maybe not so much, or it's moderate, but there's lower risk in all the other dimensions, so we feel confident that we don't necessarily need a medication to help, or a medication would not be indicated because it would not show sufficient potential to aid or assist to warrant it. And after all, the minimal amount of intervention is probably preferable to overdoing it, and if you don't have to prescribe a, a medication such as uh, Suboxone, uh, which I don't know that I mentioned that in today's podcast until now, but that is the most common medicine that is prescribed or some variant of that in medication assist or uh, opioid treatment programs. But with an opioid treatment program, the readiness to change would be qualified by this. They may be somewhat ready. They may have certainly insight, possibly not. Most likely do because, again, of all that goes along with the withdrawal, they know this is not a good situation. They need to do something. But the moderate but low risk as far as other dimensions, can't be said in the same way as is for outpatient for opioid treatment programs or medication-assist appropriate medication-assist treatment programs or patients for those programs because they can't attain or obtain sobriety. They can't stop using because they are at that point where they become so dependent, again, there is the intoxication withdrawal potential being as high as it is that they cannot stop using. Hence, you can't do outpatient because they're going to use again. Statistically, the chances are they're going to use again and not be able to sustain their abstinence sufficient to really be able to get again, give first the body again a chance to physiologically adjust to not having the substance, but get again, attain again uh, a level of functioning so as to deal with the life circumstances and situations, the stressors, and are going to be, then be at an elevated risk of relapsing. Again, Suboxone, medication-assist treatment, an opioid treatment program allows that person, that element, to be removed from that person 
while they're giving their body a chance to adjust to lesser amounts of synthetic opiate. And I should say this, possibly have, but should then say it again. What opiate is in the Suboxone under medication-assist treatment, the buprenorphine, is so small or less the potency, the amount, comparative to the opiate they were using, that the body is able to make great adjustments on the Suboxone, which could not be done on the opioid, but again, without the risk of relapse, because the naloxone is aiding that by blocking receptor sites that would otherwise require, and before the person comes in, they're not taking the naloxone or the antagonist. It blocks receptor sites that are hungry for or wanting to be filled with the opiate. So you get a greater effect on a lesser amount of the synthetic opiate because of the naloxone. And because the naloxone is there, you don't need as much then of the opiate. And because of that, the body does have a chance to go ahead and make substantial readjustments to a return to a more normal level of homeostatic response or functioning so that even as they still may be on an opiate, they're not as dependent upon the opiate physiologically. And again, as we've described in today's program, the effects of the Suboxone, their psychological, emotional sensitivity to pain, their ability to cope with it, their ability for their brain to function empirically, to use all the uh, cognitive capacity and capability to learn, to store knowledge, to retrieve it, to apply it. All of that is improved because there's less opiate in the system. So in effect, it's a win-win. Even if there's a bit of, of opiate, it is not a substitution for taking the illegal drug or illicit drug. Yes, the person is still on an opiate, but no, they're not on an opiate as they were before taking the Suboxone. And why then? It is a much better situation, it's in and of itself, in circumstance, than it was for the person just to take an opiate. And why many people who don't understand what I've just explained sometimes become confused and believe, oh, you're just taking another opiate. You're really not in recovery. You're really not helping your body. You're just replacing one drug for another. You're not. <laughs> That's not what's happening. You are in the opiate sort of dimension but it's so much less potent and so much more recovery takes place. They're not comparable beyond that. The very basic fact, they're both opiates. But the potency, the amount, the, the, uh, the effect on the body and the psychology and the emotion and, and the physiological brain operations, just so different, they're not comparable. With medication-assist treatment or an opioid treatment program, the risk for relapse or continued use 
is so high, they cannot obtain sobriety without the opioid treatment program. That's the qualifier, again, based on the American Society of Addiction Medicine, Dimension 5, Risk for Relapse Continued Use. That's why medication assist is seen as a better option than just simply outpatient. Whereas with outpatient, a person can maintain abstinence with minimal or possibly no additional supports beyond receiving the care and making sure that the immediate family home situation is not in some ways facilitative of or um, somehow enabling of the person's continued use. Doesn't itself possibly, best way to say it, represent a trigger for the person to relapse. When it comes to dimension six, the living environment, which we just mentioned, then the recovery environment is supportive and has coping skills, as is with the outpatient, could be worse, but there's really no difference then between outpatient and opioid treatment programs in that regard or in that sense. So really, to kind of sum all that up, when a diagnosis has been made of opiate use disorder, when you've got to the point where it is not only moderate, but could be severe, uh, according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, what you're getting into at that particular moment, though, or place, as you're looking at the profiling or the putting together of a profile, which really that sounds terrible, but that really is what diagnostics is about. You need to look at that comparable to others who have problems, evidence-based research into the types of problems. That's what the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual is all about, capturing the dimension and the extent of the problem, moderate to severe opioid use problems. But the ASAM criterion, too, is somewhat profiling. The American Society of Addiction Medicine says, well, when you have this, then this is, based on our observation, our empirical study, this is what you need to do if you want to have the best chance, hope for, potential for, probability of success. This is the most appropriate level of care. So outpatient works for a lot of individuals, but it doesn't work for individuals, again, who are at either a high enough level of use of an opiate that they're going to go through withdrawal, and then consequently, that's level one dimension, but consequently, then they're going to have a greater risk of relapse and continued use. And against the backdrop that it takes as much time as it takes for the body physiologically, psychologically, and emotionally to attain a higher or be restored to a higher level of functioning, and the probability of relapse then is in increased by that variable as well, then medication assist with its lesser risk then of not only withdrawal, 
but the potential to use or misuse opiates, which again was the drug of choice. That's the diagnosis, opioid use disorder. The person has experience and preference for that category of drug and misuse of it, risk for history of misuse of it, that by eliminating that ability to get high or get that effect that is either physiologically alleviating the pain, psychologically, emotionally alleviating the obligation or responsibility and pain, to deal with the pain appropriately and associated complications, which could also be painful, the person then has a chance at recovery physiologically as well as having the psychotherapeutic, the counseling, the psychological counseling aspect have its maximum effect. And if it's a well-structured program in terms of psychological counseling, it considers a measure of not only psychosocial functioning, cognitive functioning, physiological functioning, but it's a comprehensive program to address all of these primary dimensions of, again, adaptability, functionality. So it's got its best chance the counseling, the psychological counseling, has its best chance of success because the medication renders the person more receptive, more available, more amenable to the psychotherapy. Somewhere down the road, over the course of the intervention, the person then begins to have the best option or as with option, the best chance to even remove then the suboxone to effectively leave counseling, psychological counseling services, to discontinue the suboxone and not relapse. Recommendations would likely include continued supportive counseling, but that could be from support groups. It doesn't necessarily mean the individual has to be actively engaged in some outpatient counseling or, again, ASAM level of care. That is success. That is the ultimate end. Their social functioning will have improved. Psychosocial functioning will have improved. Their cognitive functioning will have improved to the extent that hopefully they're not only normal, Hopefully, they've not only gotten back to a pre-episode or incident level of functioning before all of this unfolded, but maybe they'll even be at a higher level of functioning, less likely to risk, again, relapse. So, medication-assist treatment is a good option. It is an effective option. There's been much research that's done more and more is being done to establish in an evidence-based way, research-based way, the effectiveness of medication-assist treatment comparable to outpatient care, and possibly it may at some point prove itself to be overall, in terms of actual numbers, 
the most used form of treatment, if only because most individuals who come for care come so at a level of use that represents a high tolerance physiologically as well as a progressive decline and decompensation of emotional and psychological functioning to the extent or degree that outpatient therapy would not work. You could not trust that without the assistance of the medication to allow some, again, restoration of functioning, that the person is going to be able to understand, comprehend, apply all of the psychological counseling to help them to continue to not only return again to a prior incident episode level of functioning, but to continue to grow and mature and adapt. That again would be success. So as I've done in all of our podcasts, I just want to remind you, the listener, whether you're in it or watching it, whether you're there for the person who is in it and are in a place, a good place, a desired place, a best place to assist or help them, to help themselves, we would want to answer any questions that you would have, be of any assistance we could to your attaining the help that you need. If you would want to email me, I always post the email. I can also assist you to find resources where you're at in the community that you're in, uh, direct you to someone who can help you put, again, not only a good diagnosis together, but a, a good treatment plan based on, again, the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual as well as the American Society of Addiction Medicines. Diagnostic or not diagnostic criterion, but level of care criterion. Just reach out to us. And if not us, then certainly there are, I'm sure, local providers who are in your area that can provide that assistance. The worst thing that you can do is not reach out for help, whether, again, you're the person or you're the individual that's part of that person's life. The worst thing you could do is not seek help. Once you get to the level of care we've talked about in today's program, the level of intoxication or use, the level of potential withdrawal, you can't do this alone. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to go simply cold turkey. Yes, there's probably a few who might. How many relapses, how many episodes of withdrawal, what they've had to go through really in and of itself sort of represents seeking assistance because somebody had to help them through it all. But to get help in a professional context certainly seems to represent the most efficacious, most logical, common sense way of going about it. Don't neglect the resource, the option. The Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, it's a government agency, also has a website 
of providers in your immediate area that you can reach out to. You can find them under Substance Abuse, Mental Health Services Administration Locator, or just SAMHSA, the acronym Locator. Search it on your search engine, (laughs) whatever it may be, your search engine. It's there. In the meantime, though, for those of you who would be interested and want to continue, uh, we've got more to talk about. We've got other levels of care. On our next podcast, we're going to discuss the intensive outpatient treatment level of care, uh, and we'll follow that through to residential treatment. So the invitation is come back and join us. My name again is Dr. Michael David Clay, and you are indeed listening to Word. Thanks again for joining us today.